How many of you have ever gone fishing before? Any of you? Oh, look, most of you. How serious were you about that endeavor? How serious do you get when you go fishing? Uh, I grew up in the mountains of northern Pennsylvania, and there we had fast-moving cold streams that came right down out of the mountains, and I learned to fish for trout, natives, and brookies. That's how I cut my teeth. That's how my father trained me to fish. But then every summer, we would go down to New Jersey, to the Jersey Shore, and there we would fish on the surf for blues and weeks, and then we'd fish in the bay for flounder. And so I grew up fishing, but how serious was I about that fishing? And then in 2007, I was treated to one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I was asked to go fishing. Only this kind of fishing was like nothing I'd ever done before. Actually, we went to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, boarded a boat, and from there we went out into the Gulf Stream. And for the first half of the day, we fished for mahi-mahi, and we caught a lot. As a matter of fact, afterwards, we had over 100 pounds of fish that were boned out. But the second half of the day, we went a little bit farther out into the Gulf Stream, and we decided that we were going to be fishing for blue marlin. And it was then that the first mate told me and told the group of us around, I have some things I need to explain to you. You need to know how to properly use the fighting chair. That's the fighting chair. It's unique in that it has a board across the bottom that your feet are braced on. In the front, there's a holder, a cup for the butt of your rod to go down in. And then beside you and around you, this chair was different in that you put on this wide belt and it clipped you into the chair. And at this point, the first mate says, and you know why the belt clips you into the chair? And I, no, and he said, because we don't want you pulled overboard by these fish when they hit. Suddenly, it got real serious. <laughs> Suddenly, I knew this was not fishing that I'd experienced before. And I knew that I was going to have to have my, my head and my heart and my body aligned if I was going to be successful. And in the kindness of the Lord, I was successful. And after 45 minutes of struggle, I was able to land this little blue marlin. Now, it's a little one. It's only 78 pounds. It's not that big. But when it has that fin up and it turns sideways, it's like trying to pull a door through the water. And I remember 45 minutes sweating and they're pouring water on me and we're fishing. And I, it, it was one of the most exciting, exhilarating, exhausting times of fishing ever. But some fishing is serious business. And you, at that point, you better be focused. Heart, mind, and body. Today we're going to see a, a continued national revival where the people of God are focused with their heart, their mind, and their body to the task of hearing God's word and not only that, responding to the amazing prayer of praise and confession that emanates from serious and focused worshipers. Just a quick review. In chapters 1 to 7 of Nehemiah are largely focused in on rebuilding the wall. Though there's leadership principles taught through Ezra and Nehemiah, they repeatedly overcome obstacles, internal and external, but it's the rebuilding of the wall. But beginning in chapter 8, which we've had the last two Sundays Rogers preached on, beginning in chapter 8, 
there's, there's a shift in focus. And the shift is, how do we restore a right relationship with God? We've been disobedient for a period of time. And now as we get, come back and we start to obey the Lord, how do we restore a right relationship? Chapter 8 talked about the conviction from the teaching of the word of God. And beginning with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and continuing on through the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Bruths, there's been a continuous repetition of God's word to the people of the Lord. And that conviction relates and then results in chapter 9, there being confession from the heart of praise and worship. And this shouldn't surprise us. Paul in the book of Romans says this confession occurs when we have a face-to-face experience with God, when we start to understand his faithfulness and our struggle with faithlessness. It says, but what does the word of Lord say? The word is near and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are presenting, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You see, the word convicts, and then the children of God confess. They agree with God. They repent from the previous lives of sin, and they turn and say, God, help us to live faithfully before you. Now, that third portion that we'll talk about next week, and Pastor Jason will preach on, is about covenant. After there has been conviction and a confession, there is a covenant or a commitment made between these people. Now, we'll talk about that next week. It's interesting that I want to remind us, covenant's a big deal. You better be here next week. You know why covenant's such a big deal? Because we here, all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, participate in a covenant today. You know what covenant that is? We, we celebrated it last week. We read about it. Did you hear When we had our communion, we read this. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This new covenant is is described in Jeremiah chapter 31. And there we see a number of aspects of this. It's a day coming when God's law will be internalized. Jeremiah writes this, but this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not need to teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they all will know me from the very least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Because Hebrews reminds us, week after week, month after month, year after year, the priest must go before the Lord and make sacrifices to cover over the sin, to cover over the sin temporarily. But Jeremiah 31 talks about a time when the sin is no longer covered week after week, month after month their sin is forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we continue, and as you look in chapter 9, two days after this solemn assembly of chapter 8, the people are still mourning over their sin. This was a genuine spiritual revival. In obedience to God's law, the people were fasting in sackcloth, 
Sackcloth usually was made by camel's hair. It was very coarse like burlap. Very uncomfortable to sit in in a hot Middle East sun or even in a hot Texas sun. I encourage you to try. But that was, they not only were in sackcloth, it's interesting, they were fasting with dirt on them. Now, there's insufficient time to talk about a theology of fasting, but for that, we could go to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, where Nehemiah, when he sees the condition of the wall, his heart is broken, and he can't go about activities like normal. And he fasts, and he prays, and he asks God, God, what would you have us do? Or you could go to Daniel chapter 6, where King Darius, he is, he is tricked into throwing Daniel in a lion's den. But in the kindness of the Lord, the Lord preserves Daniel's life. And even at at that night, the uncertainty of what would happen to Daniel, King Darius did this. And they spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before the king. And his sleep fled from him. Then remember, at dawn, the king arises and he goes to to moves the stone. He goes to the end of this cave and he looks down and he cries out with a troubled voice. And he said, Daniel... Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you consistently serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said, O king, live forever. For God sent his angels, and they shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent. That's a fasting, a concern for someone, even from a pagan king, saying, Something significant is going on here. These people deliberately and thoughtfully made themselves uncomfortable and hungry before the Lord. And it reminds me that kind of hunger Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 5. He says there's a blessing that goes on with that hunger for the Lord. Do you remember? How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They broke off alliances with foreign non-Jews, really coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 23. And they also confessed their ancestors' sins. And in the midst of this, there's an interesting thing that happens. The congregation not only confesses their own sin, but they, they work with and they relate to and confess the sins of their people. There's solidarity with their people. There's, it's just not that I've sinned. We've sinned as a nation. Amen? And in the midst of that, they, they list out, here's some of the sins, and here's how faithful God was. Here's the sin, and here's how faithful God is. Here's where we struggle with faithlessness, and here's how faithful God is. It almost is like Isaiah in chapter 6 when he's commissioned, and he's given a vision of the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And God says, who's going to go and, and serve me? And Daniel was distressed. Remember that? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You know, one of the principles that even comes out of this, this focus on God, heart, mind, and body, this focus on God. One of the things we learn is the the more we're focused on God, and the more we turn to the Lord God Almighty and see him clearly, the more we also see our own sin more clearly. How big is your Savior? Is he big enough for all your sin? Or is your Savior little because you just have a little sin? 
Well, continuing on, this first four verses talk about a separation that has occurred. It has nothing to do with simply disliking someone. Separation has to do principally with religious commitment to the idea of covenant loyalty. And this is a reminder from one of the saddest passages in the whole Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your hearts away after their own gods. Solomon held fast to these women in love, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord God, as the heart of David his father had been. This idea of separation involves an action. They've got to get back to God's standard. They've got to get back to holy living. It reminds me of the adage, there's no fool like a old fool. And the reason that's such a profound adage is is that older people through life, through looking at the way life works and through studying the word and through understanding God, they should be more and more wise. There's no fool like an older fool who's no longer wise in the Lord, but he allows his heart to be turned away. Would you consider your own relationships, even the most intimate marriage relationships? And when you consider your relationships, I have a question for you. Are they turning your heart towards the Lord? Or are they turning your heart away from the Lord? For the people that speak into our lives, the people that we're most connected with have a voice in our life. And the word of God says they need to be turning us towards the Lord. I love this passage as it continues on. It it says that there are eight Levites who come. Now, let me read this. Now, on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt on them. And their descendants from Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of the Father. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law for the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord God. Now, on the Levites' platform stood eight hard Jewish names, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Um, You might know... As we've talked through 38 verses, we're going to have to summarize. And they are hard names. If you look at the list, any time when you have Benny, Bunny, Benny, as a part of that list, we kind of just gloss over that. But what's significant is what are they doing? What are they doing there? They're doing something significant and they're asking the Lord, Lord, we're going to spend a time, three hours, in the hearing and the teaching of your word. And then, Lord, after that three hours, we're going to spend three more hours in praise and worship and confession of our sin. And that begs a question, the seriousness as they hear the word of God and as they then confess through worship. It begs a question, how do we do when it comes to our times of worship and hearing the word? How do we do? You know, I'm glad we're a friendly church and and before the services and after the services, there's great fellowship going on. But when the word of God is read and when the people of God are taught and when worship occurs, that's not a time for casual conversation. 
Our hearts need to be focused on God Almighty, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our voice needs to be filled with praise towards him. There must be focus. And so if you ever see me during a worship service, when the, the, there is the corporate expression of our worship and our adoration of God, if you ever see me, I'll try to be friendly, but I'm not going to talk with you because it's time for me to talk with God Almighty. Is that okay? How serious are we about this kind of worship? Continuing on in chapter 9, we have verse, uh, continuing on verses 5 through 37. 5 through 37, the core of what we're going to be looking at today is, is a psalm and a prayer of praise. And Nehemiah includes this in the book. And he says this, Then I heard the names of eight Levites, and they said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted over all blessing and praise. They start out with this wonderful call to bless God. Baruch is the Hebrew word. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Do what? Bless his holy name. It's interesting, these group of Levites, there's eight in each group. Eight teach the word of God and speak it and then teach it. Eight then lead in worship and confession. Five names are common to that list. But three names are unique. Some can do both. Some can teach and read the word and lead in worship. Some are not reading the word and teaching, but instead they're part of the praise of the Lord. And thus begins this section, this wonderful section where God's glorious name is going to be praised. This psalm actually is a wisdom psalm. It's going to continue to instruct the the readers and they will hear repeated the history of Israel with emphasis on certain portions of Israel's history. It's especially helpful that we would read this psalm through the eyes of these returned exiles. And as they come into the land, they're reminded of a previous coming into the land and the promise of God and his faithfulness. There are 13 separate instances where where God seems to be showing his faithfulness and man's fickleness. It's almost like there's 13 waves of God's faithfulness crashing down on the seashore sandcastle of our unfaithfulness. It needs to be wiped away and we need to see God in a different way. First of all, in verse 6, it describes the Lord and his greatness in the creation of the cosmos. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. Do you see the worship that's occurring there when we get a vision of God? It's interesting. The word host, the heavenly host is Sabaoth and it means heavenly host or heavenly army or heavenly warriors. These are the angels. And it's interesting in the book of Hebrews chapter one, it says, are not they all ministering spirits, the angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Even right now, there's an angelic host surrounding us. Normally we can't see it, maybe we can't even feel it. But they're there and they're effective and they're part of God's faithfulness to us. And we should be grateful for them. By the way, holy angels were made by God to praise and obey their creator. And you know what? 
They do. Holy people were made and saved and redeemed by God. And they are to worship and obey him like the angels. In the midst of this, this greatness is seen, secondly, in the the great grace and faithfulness in the calling of Abraham. And this is significant, promising him the land of Canaan and fulfilling that biblical promise. Verses 7 and 8. And you are the God who chose Abram and you brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, of the Jebusite, of the Girgashite, to give it to the descendants, literally to the seed. You have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. The Hebrew word for covenant here that God is going to fail is berit. And again, next week we'll delve more into the covenant aspect of this, but there's at least some discussion we need to have about this Abrahamic covenant, this sovereign promise that Abraham would inherit and his descendants would inherit the land of Israel. Romans 4, chapter 1, 4, 1 through 5 says, Then what shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not boasting before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and then God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works for his wage is not accredited as a favor, but he that is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies and, the, the, and the justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This calling, this promise is based on God's sovereign election. God chose Abraham. And when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 10, there it talks that even though you were the fewest of people, I chose you and I chose to keep my covenant of loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, One more comment I've got to make about Abraham and this covenant for him to be given the, the Jewish people the land of Israel. This covenant is eternal and it's a promise given to Abram in Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so shall you be a blessing. And listen, I will bless those who bless you, Jewish people. I will bless those who bless you, children of Abraham. And the one who curses you, I will curse And you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now here, very clearly, people who have a problem with the Jewish nation being in the land of Israel, specifically there's a movement called BDS. It's boycott, divest of your stock, and sanction people that come from this land and that aren't where they think they should be. And that does have a justice aspect to it. But people who say the Jewish people should not be in the land of Israel, they don't have a problem with the Jewish people. They have a problem with God Almighty. And they are rebelling against his sovereign decision to bless Abraham and to put him in this land. And we as believers of the word of God should never forget that. And by the way, that's not politically correct. Do you know that? That's not politically correct, but it's biblically 
correct. And I would hope that we desire more to be biblically correct people than politically correct. Third, the, the exiles returned and they could identify with God's miraculous division, uh, deliverance of their forefathers when they were slaves in Egypt. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cries by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against his servants and the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly, the Egyptians, and, they made, and you decided to make a name for yourself. You divided the seas and passed through the midst of them on dry ground. And, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like stone into a raging tempest of waters. It's interesting, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of a great um, comment that, that um, an Old Testament theologian wrote about this passage. He said, there's some 40 Hebrew words that are used to speak of miracles. They're used approximately 500 times in the Old Testament. And half of those 40 words used 500 times, half of them refer to the miracles surrounding the Exodus. People of God, if you wonder if God is faithful and he will bring around his promises and he's powerful and he can make the waves and the winds obey because they know his name. In the midst of this, this idea of, of God, you alone can do the miraculous. Continuing on in these 13 waves, the fourth, the returnees could appreciate God's supernatural guidance as he brought them into the land. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Do you hear God's gracious provision? If you go to the Middle East, one of the problems you have during the day is the hot searing sun. And yet God sends this cloud to guide them and protect them. How kind is our God? And in the night, if you spend time in the desert, which I've done there in Israel, it gets cold. And God has this divine light, the fire of God, sometimes called the Shekinah, the glory of God, this divine light. He has this guarding them and guiding them forward, setting their feet. They boast thanks for Yahweh for choosing them and giving them his law. God came down, verse 13 and 14 says, you came down from Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and you gave them your just ordinances, true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them the commandments, the statutes and the law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them in their hunger, you brought forth water from a rock in their thirst, and you told them to enter the, in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Now, at this point, we get to a crucial portion of this scripture. And when you're studying, oh, say, 33 verses and saying, what, what is, where is God taking us? Usually, you should start with what is first. What is first is this wonderful Bible study and teaching of the word for three hours, this wonderful time of praise and worship and confession for three hours. That's what started this whole thing. And then what's at the end of the chapter? Well, that we'll talk about next week. It's covenant. Covenant. After we've confessed and been convicted by the word, we need to enter back into covenant. We need to have a binding relationship with the Lord. But actually, then we come to what is in the middle have any of you ever eaten an Oreo cookie? It's just the creamy center in the middle. 
Um, by the way, just a, on a note, do you know how many different kinds of Oreo cookies are up at HEB right now? As part of the, work, the research for this sermon, I went up <laughs> and I found that there are at least 11 different kinds of Oreo cookies. There's the regular, mint thins, pistachio thins, double stuffed. By the way, if double stuffed aren't enough, they're the mega stuffed. Dark chocolate, golden, double stuffed golden thins. There's a birthday cake Oreo but I want to show you my favorites. And I'll include the receipt because this was for the church. (laughs) This is for you that I did this extensive research. My favorites for years, and by the way, I only eat sweets like very seldom, but I'm kind of excited about this message, aren't you? My favorite is the golden stuffed double Oreo, double stuffing. That's been my favorite. But then I saw something that caught my eye and I said, I must explore this. (laughs) Red velvet Oreos. And so later today, continuing this message, I will do research which which now is my favorite. All right, focus not on the Oreos, focus back on the word of God, okay? This is the creamy middle This is where God wants us to get us. And it shows us the character and the heart of God. Listen to verses 16 to 19. You forgave them and you graciously guided them. But they are fathers. They acted arrogantly. They became stubborn. Literally, they stiffened their neck. And you would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. They did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn. And they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. At this point, the people of God should all join together in the Yiddish phrase, oi vey. Oh no, this can't be. After God's brought them out with a mighty hand, this can't be that they're planning and preparing to go back to Egypt. But look at the character of God, this creamy center. But you are a God of forgiveness. You are a God gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You abound in loving kindness and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies, acts of contempt. In your great compassion, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night. This reminder of God's loving kindness, we should stop and take note of this. Loving kindness is an interesting word. It's, it's a Hebrew word, chesed. Can you, can you all say that with me? Chesed. Now, some of you are saying chesed. It's chesed. No, you got to clear your throat and don't spit, but clear your throat. Chesed. Chesed. God's covenant-keeping, loyal love reminds us, it's reminded of us Many places in the Bible, one great example is Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, which says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And this reminder afterward, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. 
This begs the question, how good are you and I in talking to others about the Lord who has redeemed us from our slavery to sin? Are we good at that? Do we take regular advantage? You know, often when I meet people, if, if I'm new, they'll, they'll ask me, you know, are you married? Yes, been married for 37 and a half years. Brenda was my girlfriend for 38 and a half years. So she was my girlfriend. Sometimes I still introduce her as my girlfriend. And, and in the midst of that, I often say, marrying Brenda was the second best decision of my life. Now, it was one of the most questionable decisions of her life at that time, but it was the second best decision. And you know what that opens up? What do, they, what do people ask? Well, what's the first decision? What's the best decision? And I get to brag on Jesus. It was when at 18 years old, I turned from myself and I turned to God through Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. And he cleansed me and he remade my life and he redeemed me and he set me up and he adopted me. What examples do you have that you can use regularly to brag on your God and what he's done in your life? Well, with that, this uh, uh, God continues on with their physical needs in verses 20 and 21. He says, there's five provisions made by the Lord. God, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You gave manna to feed them. You gave water for their thirst. And this is especially significant because in the Middle East, in this dry and barren land, where there's water, there's life. If you see a lot of life growing up, like at Jericho, you know there's got to be a strong spring nearby. Where there's water, there's life. And God gave them water. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. In 1995, I had the joy of going for the first time to Israel on a student trip from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I was actually the teaching assistant, the grader for this trip, and so there were assignments due along the way. But we decided that as we went south into what's called the Negev, really a part of the Sinai Peninsula, as we went south, we decided to do something when we got to the wilderness of Zin. This is the area where Israel had wandered 40 years for their disobedience. And we decided and our wisdom, that what we would do is we'd get off the bus and then we would tell the bus driver to drive one kilometer out in front of us, which is 0.621371 miles. A little over half a mile. How far is half a mile? How quickly could you walk that half a mile? But within five minutes of getting off the bus, the students started to complain I want to get back on the bus. It's right up there. I want to get back on the bus. We didn't bring enough water. Can't we go back to the hotel? Now, I know they were just messing with me like the Jewish people did, grumbling and murmuring, but it was really irritating. (laughs) As you walk through this land and as you realize that God provided food and shelter and water, their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell. God provided for these people miraculously. Yahweh gave them victory over their enemies in verse 22. You gave them the kingdoms of the people you allowed it to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sion, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. He also multiplied them and brought them into the land of promise. He established them there. What a joy that must have been, God multiplying and establishing them in the land. So there was great joy, right? But there was also great sorrow. 
Yesterday marks the 30th anniversary of an event that impacted and shaped the world. Do you remember what it was? 30 years ago yesterday, the government of East Germany declared that the Berlin Wall would come down. They would no longer maintain it. And do any of you remember those pictures of what occurred next? People almost spontaneously went out and started destroying that wall and tearing it down. And there was such a great time of rejoicing. But along with that, did you see the sorrow? People who for 28 years had been captive under communism and longing for freedom and finally, but but the sorrow from 28 wasted years. That's what happens when God gets hold of your heart. There's rejoicing for the great things he's done, but there's also sorrow for the years you wasted. Is that true of you? The first year I became a believer, I was at college, and there I was discipled by a man named Greg Fritz. And Greg regularly met with me, usually about three times a week, and then three other times a week we would join together in prayer with other believers there with Campus Crusade for Christ. And that first year was a wonderful year. I turned away from a number of my sins of the past, and I sought God with my heart. And it was wonderful. I remembered that, that my sins were forgiven, that I was washed clean, that he made me his child. But I couldn't forget. And I couldn't think of all the wasted opportunities in my, that my high school years enveloped. There's both joy, but there's also sorrow. During this period of the judges, Nehemiah continues, in the monarchy, they disobeyed and rebelled many times, and yet God faithfully sent deliverers to to protect them and to turn them back to the Lord. In verses 26 to 29, tells that, that the people are rebelling against you. They cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies, literally acts of contempt. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried out to you in their time of distress, you heard from heaven according to your great compassion. And Nehemiah ends later in the verse, in verse 38, you rescued them according to your compassion. You admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Wave after wave after wave of God's faithfulness. And time after time after time, his people struggle with faithlessness. Does this resonate with you? It does with me. In the words of an old-time poem, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I say I love. And the solution is what? Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Well, as we come to the end of our message, it's interesting that we get to a place where the Jews return and they remember their sufferings in exile. And they say, now therefore, our God, our great and mighty God, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. See the combination of covenant and loving kindness? Loving kindness is God's covenant-keeping love. That, that's what drives him, his love. 
They acknowledged the exile was a consequence of their disobedience. And now because of all this, they turn to the Lord and say, we want to enter into a new relationship. We want a new covenant with you. Not the new covenant, but we want to go back and we want to declare our loyalty to you. As we conclude this message, remember the flow of this. It starts in chapter 8 with, with a Bible study. And the people there on the Day of Atonement, when God covers for a year the sins of the nation, the people there were reminded and convicted. And then they have this wonderful confession in chapter 9 that continues repeatedly afterwards to say God is faithful and we struggle with faithlessness. In the midst of this struggle, we are understanding that don't forget the creamy middle, the character and the heart of God. We are stubborn, but you, God, are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding with loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, and he will not forsake us. Would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Father God, our eternal security is based on your loving kindness. And Lord, we fight against faithlessness. Lord, we thank you for the promise that he who has the Son has the life written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your covenant-keeping love and your loving kindness. And Lord, if there are any here today who have yet established a relationship with you, would you give to them the gracious gift to believe in you and that might know that they have eternal life? And Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you, would you grace us with hearts aligned with your heart? Would you cause us to be rapid confessors of our sin? Would you align our heart, our mind, and our body to follow our faithful, loving, kind Savior, Jesus Christ? And God's people said, amen.